Welcome to The Emergent Human, where we explore optimizing health, embodied spirituality, and post-conventional living. I'm Michael Osterlink, a therapist, coach, educator, and I'm your host. I'd like to do a shout out to my coach and teacher, Amanda Jade Fiorini. It, she wrote a wonderful piece entitled Grief as an Ally of Emergence, which I'll include in the show notes, which is a really time, timely piece for me personally. For those listeners who have children, grandchildren, or coaches or mentors to kids, let me encourage you to check out Natural Learning Relationships, which is a Facebook group. You can learn how nurturing children development can lead to your adult development, and you can find them on Facebook. Today's show is brought to you by Somatic Psychotherapy Today. Today's guest is Dr. Leslie Ellis. Dr. Ellis is a leading expert in the use of somatic approaches in psychotherapy, in particular for working with dreams, nightmares, and the effects of trauma. She is the author of A Clinician's Guide to Dream Therapy and offers many training opportunities in bodied experiential dream work based on her book. She has a PhD in clinical psychology from the Chicago School of Professional Psychology with a specialization in somatic approaches. Dr. Ellis has a master's from the Pacific Graduate Institute and worked as a therapist in private practice in Vancouver, British Columbia for more than 20 years. Her approach to therapy combines Jungian and focus-oriented techniques. She was adjunct faculty at Adler University where she taught clinical skills and developed a trauma course for the Masters of Counseling program. She is a certified coordinator and vice president of the International Focusing Institute. How are you doing, Leslie? Oh, I'm doing really well, thanks. I'm happy to be here. I'm very happy to have you. Congratulations on your new book. Thank you. Very exciting. Um, I thought one way we could get into this conversation is that you had two formative experiences that you used dream work to kind of unpack and, and do a deep dive into. And I thought it might be there is where we could kind of start this conversation. Yes, I've had many um, stunning dreams, but there's one in particular that stands out to me. And I was, um, at the time I had this dream, I was doing uh, my master's in, in counseling at Pacifica, where the focus was on uh, Jungian depth approaches. And so uh, I, we were all really um, in this class, we had a lovely connected cohort and we were all really excited by it. it was it was new and we were very excited by our dreams and dream work and and uh, I had been seeing a Jungian analyst and I had this dream that was um, extremely um, I mean, dreams tend to go deep, but this one really touched on some of the most profound experiences of my life and brought them together in one image. So the image was of me as a, as a baby in a glass box, and I'm going down a rushing river and being pulled into a whirlpool. And I, I wake up because it's just so um, visceral. I feel myself being sucked down. And so this tide basically two um, near-death experiences that I had in my life. The first was when I was born. I was um, very premature, two months premature. I weighed only three pounds and I was really not expected to survive. And, and I know that you know, my, my conscious memories of that are, 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 are of course not existent, but I do think my body has a deep, um, deep recollection of that very 
difficult, lonely start in life. I think it marked me in, in a lot of ways. I'm, I'm a kind of a loner. And then uh, when I was 17, I nearly drowned in this um, big uh, uh, whitewater pool in, in a creek up in the hills, uh, the mountains behind here. I, friends and I used to go there in the summer and drink beer and lay in the sun. And, and, and this day I decided uh, at the prompting of my friend and I was always up for a dare uh, to just to dive under the waterfall. Um, at that that em emptied into this pool and if he said if you went down you know three or four feet there was a sort of a calm patch and you could swim under and and come out on the other side so I tried that but I didn't get far enough under the current and so I got pulled I got pulled down by it way down I honestly um, it got past the point of needing air and um, was convinced I was going to die in that in that pool and um, the strange thing was even at 17 I just finished high school and was off you know to start my life and you'd think this would be about the worst time to uh, have your life and I, I in that time in the pool I, I actually kind of became peaceful about it I accepted it and and then um and then I had this, you know, some of the classic near-death experience stories, like I felt presence, I felt, I, I saw light, I felt peaceful, I felt like I had a choice, and obviously I chose um, to uh, swim back up, I never lost consciousness, but this just had a deep, deep, uh, profound impact on me, and so um, this dream itself was tying the, the two experiences together in an image that kind of incorporates both. And I worked with this dream with my uh, therapist, um, who was a Jungian analyst who also really worked with embodied experiential approaches. And we revisited uh, this dream and he, um, in the session, kind of pulled me out, uh, like actually grabbed my hand, which he never would do normally. He was very much the, you know, um, follow the, the frame of, of, of therapy and, and not touching your client. But this one time he made an exception and it felt like he reached back all the way to my past, to that little baby that was so alone. It really felt like a visceral um, reaching through time. I, I can't really, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you the story, but I, I don't think I can really convey the power of it. I can just tell you that it changed me at a very um, deep visceral level. And it made me realize that the power of dreams is, is profound and that dreams access um, a deeper layer and they're always um, trying to help us uh, move through things and forward. And it, it you know, I've all, I had already been really uh, interested in working with dreams and felt like this is a, a, an excellent way to approach psychotherapy, but this experience just made it so much more um, compelling to me. Before we get into the therapeutic uses of dreams, uh, which you lay out really nicely in your book, would you say that the second near-death experience you had under the water, did that kind of initiate your interest in dreams, psychology, Jung, body work? Like, where did, where did all those interests emerge from? Um, it might have been an initiation. At the time, I wasn't really aware of that. I was, you know, just really just a teenager, not not even aware. I mean, I was interested in my dreams and sort of interested in just life's mysteries, I guess. But, you know, it didn't really um, 
surface until much later. I, I did have a lucid dream. One of my very first lucid dream was of being underwater. So it was kind of a wow. <clears throat> continuation, a little bit of that experience because I was underwater in this dream and I realized I was not having any trouble breathing. I was not needing air and it reminded me of getting to that state where I didn't need it. But then I realized I was dreaming and then the whole the whole scene just became so much more intense and it was vivid and it was fun. And it was, I was reading the Harry Potter books at the time, I think to my daughter, or maybe it was just for myself. And so I, I, was it was like I was in the lake where they're looking for the the um they're, they're rescuing their friend or where or they all had quests where they're under the lake and except not as creepy as that it, it was a little bit more fun and so I just you know that that I don't frequently lucid dream but that was a whole like when you wake up in your dream it, it has this other level of intensity and um it feels so real and so it just it it's another thing that made me interested in dreams, but I, I really got into it kind of after university. I was working as a journalist and I did that for about 10 years, actually writing about science. And and then I just started, you know, getting into personal growth and interested in dreams, um, particularly with friend groups and going on retreats that were, you know, sort of more personal exploration and and decided I, I needed a career change. I wanted um, to to really have my work be a little, go a little bit deeper into the, these kinds of, um, these kinds of more personal and spiritual um, realms. And so I went to Pacifica um, and that, um, and watched uh, some of the the masters of dream work and, and active imagination there, like uh, Lionel Corbett and Steven Eisenstadt and James Hillman. And uh, these were great mentors. And so that's where my interest was really, um, you know, met with uh, teachers and systems that that could actually make me able to apply this with uh, with clients with um, psychotherapy patients. How did you get into some a more somatic approach to your work in general and then focusing in particular? So I think part of it is I've always been very much um, into my my body I've been an athlete all my life and so I and I just feel like the um you know ways of of you know meeting the world and listening to the world through my body has been pretty um pretty much something I've naturally done and then when I finished at Pacifica I was um pregnant with my daughter Grace and uh so I couldn't go into practice right away so I wanted to study some more and just keep my my mind in, um, in, you know, into something relevant. And so I took a focusing uh, therapy program, a two-year program. And it was, uh, it is a way of working with the body that's very, it developed by Eugene Janlin that is very um, rich and deep and subtle. And uh, it, it really, um, I think, complements the, the way I do dream work so well. So I, I studied it deeply and I started my practice kind of with those two skill sets already. And I think a lot of my students come to the body later when they um, come up against certain limitations, especially working with uh, implicit trauma, things that happened before your, your memories were really um, clear and solid or, or just when trauma is 
you know, dissociated and we don't recall it. And, and so focusing and accessing the embodied states um, is a way to get at things that otherwise I think are not accessible. And I feel comfortable in that realm. I think it might be, you know, partly just because of the way I started my life, I kind of ended up you know, being thrown onto my own internal resources right away. And I've always been just interested in that whole inner world. It, it really feels to me like it's got uh, so much richness and vastness, as big as the outer world. And and that I, I find, um, I guess I encounter a lot of, um, you know, ways that it's devalued in our current culture. And so I feel like this... Um, way of going in is um, it's, it's for me like coming home and for in my work I feel like it it's um, it's what gets it's if people come to therapy they they don't always know the way forward that's why they're that's why they're there and this is the the missing piece is that there you know you can think your way through something and go around and around in circles but the body will have another take and some somewhat of a a, a broader take and so accessing that um learning how to do that was was I feel lucky that I learned it right away and um and so that I could just start my my practice with embodied practices and I would never now do that, uh, do it without that, um, that listening to the body as part of it, it feels like it's just crucial to getting to what really matters and what's really true for people. Well, I, I definitely hope it's, it's a future piece of the future world of psychology and psychiatry. Because um, you know, I like to say that uh, most of therapeutic approaches are from the top of the crown of the head to the jawline. <laughs> that kind of stops yes. there. Yes, if, if I agree. That, unfortunately. I agree. And uh, that is, um, I mean, you know, not that, that cognitive approaches are, um, you know, there's there's some usefulness to it, but we obviously, um, you know, don't live from the, from the neck up. Our whole body's in, involved and our mind can fool us and lie to us. And, you know, <clears throat> people can get into trouble that way or just get into endless loops. Whereas the body um, is much more uh, grounded and authentic. And I find that your head is more likely to lead you wrong than your body. Right. You won't get any arguments from me. So in your book, A Clinician's Guide to Dream Therapy, Implementing Simple and Effective Dream Work, uh, you lay out various reasons why engaging a client in, in the dream process is, is very helpful. I'm just going to name a few, and I would love for you to kind of break some of those down. If that's sure. Okay. Yeah, of course. Um, you, they help point out salient emotional concerns. Uh, they bypass internal editing. Also, the, you know, as you point out in the book, the prefrontal cortex is offline. Mm -hmm. um, they can provide new perspectives on issues, and they can be a diagnostic tool, including uh, for physical illnesses, which I think is amazing to think about. But why don't we start to just the first one? You know, they, they point out, they help, they can help point out um, the most salient emotional concerns the individual brings to the therapeutic process. Yeah, they seem to cut to the chase. And part of, part of it is um, backed by what we can now see, um, what, the brain, what the dream researchers are finding when they look at what's happening in the brain during dreaming. And, 
it's implicated in emotional regulation and memory consolidation. So the idea is that dreams are um, picking up the things that have got a rise out of us during the day that have got an emotional reaction, even if it's a, um, not something we noticed consciously. But there, it's, I think part of what the emotional system's doing is, is flagging what's important. You know, and we, when, when we get an emotional response to something, that means we wanna remember it, it's important, it has, a, it has meaning to us. And our, our, we, you know, we have a million things coming at us all day. We can't recall them all. There's, that would be um, you know, just impossible. And so how do we select what we're going to remember? Uh, this is really well understood that we emotions increase our ability to remember something. If it's got an emotional charge, we will recall it. We're way more likely to recall it well. So uh, dreaming seems to be part of that process of taking the things that have this emotional charge and then laying that um, piece of the of the experience into an associative network so we can we can pull it back when we need it. And nobody knows for sure, but this is a this is a plausible theory about what we're doing when we're dreaming. And that means that the content of dreaming are those things that are important to us that we need to process. And they're also showing that when we do that, when we process it and, and lay it down in our memories in a way that's accessible, that then the emotional charge dissipates as if it's done its job. And so it's regulating our emotions and creating uh, memories of things that matter. So when we pay attention to what we're dreaming about, we're actually augmenting those processes, which sound very much like therapy, where you go and process emotion that hasn't been fully metabolized, and then it, and then it becomes part of your memory as opposed to something current that keeps um, keeps cropping up in in ways that aren't helpful. And so I feel like. Um, dreams are such a useful tool that way for therapists because they help you select, you know, with the client, what is truly important in their, um, in their psyche and their emotional system, what is brewing. And very often it, it's, it's those things that we repress. So they're just under the surface. There's the stuff that we may not otherwise want to look at. They're, they're like the good friend that tells you the, the tough things to hear and, but those things always feel better for having worked through them. So dreams are just a great way to, I think, initiate um, what what we pay attention to in our therapy. We similarly joked about you know living just inside of your head between the ears <laughs> yes. and its limitations. And let me narrow that down to the, the rational mind, uh, the prefrontal cortex, because in your book you do talk about how dreams that that part of the brain is is quote unquote offline so yes. we're not we're not uh, editing out mm -hmm. <laughs> experiences through the kind of the rational mind process can you speak a little bit of that and how important that really is yes um well oh, i could say so much about that let me see how i can kind of pare it down a little <laughs> bit um so in dreaming um you know they've they've dream researchers have looked at what is going on in the brain when we're dreaming and that yes the prefrontal cortex is way way dampened down so we don't have access to a lot of our ability to record memories so most of our dreams are forgotten um except when we're kind of crossing the sleep 
wake barrier or if we can become lucid in our dreams, we, we tend to forget most of what we dream about. Um, but we also lose our ability to, you know, to, you know, process in a logical way, time sequences get out of, out of sync. And all of those, um, you know, are really just indications that the, the researchers are right, that that um, executive functioning in our brain is not on. And what it does instead is that the emotional limbic system and the visual cortex, those are um, operating um, and your um, emotional system is actually more active in dreaming, in REM dreaming than when you're awake. So there's a, uh, an, an, another way of sort of being that, that is more um, in the moment, more holistic, more uh, visual, kind of often associated with right hemisphere functioning. And it is a, um, it is a, a kind of a, a free, freely associative, hyper associative state that links things that aren't normally put together, but that have a, have a relevance. So there's this really creative um, process that unfolds and the, 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 the sort of waking mind, the, the logical focus mind really just gets in the way of that. It will criticize it. It will, it will, um, you know, just kind of make fun of it. It will make fun of our dreams and say they're meaningless. And so I feel like um, <clears throat> dreaming kind of gets that, um, that critic and that editor out of the way. It's useful to have, um, you know, in certain circumstances and after the fact, but mm -hmm. when we're just processing freely, it's, it's really, it's really good to have um, just that open kind of creative flow that can happen in those states. And you can enter those kind of states also when you're awake, which I, I often encourage when I'm working with people's dreams is to re-enter a little bit more of a liminal state that, that bypasses or, or quiets down that editor. And that's part of the process of, of really getting uh, the value from, from dreams is to shift into the, the, the more um, embodied, right, right shifted state where these things, this, this is the sort of their natural home and where they're, they're valid, valued. And I feel like, um, you know, a lot of times the, 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 People that tend to devalue uh, dreams or things that are from the implicit realm or that are really hard to quantify are coming from this very much um, sort of left hemisphere logical place, which is which is a way of thinking, but not the only way. And I'll defer to, I'll recommend a book um, by Ian McGilchrist called The Master and His Emissary that talks about this in in great, great detail. But it, it I think that um, that letting the you know letting the editor just be quiet and still for a while and opening up to this other other way of thinking and being is is really generative and creative and and if you're stuck on something this is like coming at it from a whole new perspective and dreams do that you know the way you just described it and then you also talked about the the, the fact that you can actually access those states while in quote unquote awake uh reminds me of the sacred medicine use it's very similarly similar uh, mm -hmm. So that's it's fascinating. You know, you talked about um, the right hemisphere, left hemisphere, and it's interesting how each of those hemispheres show up culturally. And you you pointed out that people who disbelieve the value of dreams to a certain extent might be more left hemisphere in quotes oriented. Um, and in your book, you talk about right hemisphere as being um, one one kind of cultural phenomenon of the indigenous communities. 
yes. who are seemingly much more right hemispherically oriented, communal, open, emotional. I don't mean emotional in a bad way, but you know, open to emotions and connections and, and stuff like that, as opposed to linear and rational. So it's fascinating to think about dreams from that perspective as well. Yes, there's definitely a very big difference in how one views dreams depending on your cultural orientation. And I do want to say like the left right hemisphere, I, I think of it more as a metaphor because there is some truth to it, but it, it's so much an oversimplification yeah. that but it, it yeah. is a way of, of, of thinking or being and indigenous cultures or what they would call like polyphasic cultures value dreams as as if they are also a, a real, um, they're real life. They're not just a, a fantasy world. They're a real world with its own rules of engagement and in some ways more important. I mean, there are if famously the Aborigines in Australia, for example, that think of dream time as, as, as a very real realm and that if someone has a dream, in that culture, they immediately bring it to the community. And the dream is not about the person and their own personal issues and 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 their life. It's actually something that may be important for the community or important for the world. And I think dreams can be all of those things. Dreams can be personal, they can be transpersonal, um, they can be all of those things at the same time. But our culture, I mean, North American culture is very much, um, um, seems biased toward the um, empirical, what you see and what you can touch, what you can measure is true. And the rest of it is suspect is kind of how I see our, our cultural bias. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't really, that viewpoint doesn't really value dreams. Although even there, I would say, because there's been some research that you know, I've just referred to about understanding that dreams have this um, useful way of metabolizing emotions and laying down memory that that even you know those who might um, dismiss sort of more um, mysterious and magical uh, aspects of dreaming will say that there is something um, useful about about them anyway or evolution would have not selected for them we would have stopped dreaming if it wasn't doing something important for us yeah you actually you do discuss that in your book because um, you point out different theorists, practitioners, clinicians, and researchers um, who have different theories on the dreams. And you talked about kind of the evolutionary biological understanding of it. Let me let me have you go back. You mentioned that you mentioned individual and or transpersonal in orientation in terms of a dream. A dream could be both. Um, you mentioned Eisenstadt. And in his work, he not only talks about the individual or the collective unconscious, but also the entire natural world, which yes. I think is awesome because I usually only hear you know, the collective unconscious of the individual. I, 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 it's never, I shouldn't say it's never. I've never had the experience of reading into or listening to too many people talk about kind of the biospheric space for dreams to emerge or the ecological. Yes. Yeah, this is what Steven Eisenstadt is is famous for, is that he added a layer to Jung's idea of the, there's the personal, uh, um, con you know, waking conscious, and then the um, unpersonal unconscious, and then the collective unconscious, which includes what Jung would call the archetypes or the, the experiences common to us all. Like, for example, uh, the experience of mother is an archetypal experience. And then Steven Eisenstadt went one step beyond and said there's, there is a world unconscious that is um, really the, um, 
he would say through dreaming that the world is speaking to us and through us. And so if we dream about, about the whales, for example, it's not about our relationship to a whale or what a whale means to us. It's the whales basically calling to us through our dreams. And that if we have a dream like that, then it behooves us to, to, to think about not how the dream can serve us, but how we can serve the dream. And he has examples that he gives of people who've dreamt of, of various, um, like one man he, who dreamt about a church that ended up being a real place in Mexico that he went to. And the church was in ruins. And this man, as part of his life project, raised the money to restore this place. And That's cool. so he, yeah, he, so it's, it's, it's that kind of thing. And I had a dream about trees after that, like a forest that was charred and, and dying. And I felt like, oh, these are the trees dreaming through me. The trees, you know, need attention and, and, and have had some quite magical experiences happen since then, or when I'm in that mode, I've had animals come up to me, wild animals, and talk, literally <clears throat> seem like they're talking to me, although I, I don't understand what they're saying, but it, it feels like that realm is, it's there, um, and dreams are like a window into it, and I feel like I've only brushed the surface, but but this is this is Steven Eisenstadt's um, real gift, and he's worked with a lot of indigenous communities to really understand their take on dreaming well, that, that's actually a great segue to another area um, that dreams can be useful in a therapeutic process because you talk about it can provide new perspectives on issues. Now, you weren't talking about individual personal issues, but obviously everything you just laid out are new perspectives on the world. But yes. can you speak to like how they can provide new perspectives for you as an individual, not necessarily collective unconsciously or, or at the, you know, the Gaia mind? Right. Well, there are so many ways, but I think one of my um, real favorite ways of, of using dreams to bring new perspectives is to try on the subjective experience of various aspects of our dreams. So you can do this with any dream. It doesn't have to be uh, something big and momentous, but it could be that you dream of, you know, just an ordinary um, object or person or some little narrative. And what's really uh, a, a very effective, reliably effective way of getting a new perspective is to embody those things in your dream that feel very foreign, the things you don't like, the things that feel like they're not you. Um, there's a, a um, a gestalt idea that everything in the dream is actually an aspect of yourself. Right. I'm not sure if I, I, and I put lots of these ideas out there. I don't know if I believe every single one of them, but I like to try them on. I, I'm the kind of person who believes everything until it's proven wrong, as opposed to disbelieving everything until it's proven right. So I, I'm, I'm open to trying all of these things. And, awesome. and yeah, and this idea that the dream represents aspects of ourselves that are, are in our, you know, hidden or unknown, um, is really a, a way of enlarging your consciousness. And Robert Bosnick, uh, a Jungian, another Jungian, his, his work is, is quite um, famous for this particular aspect of entering into or making what he would call making a transit into a dream object and becoming, say, the, um, you know, you could become the, the monster in your dream, the thing you're most afraid of. And I've done this with people who have nightmares that have had the similar um, kind of attacker come back. And when they 
uh, it takes some courage, I will say, but when they embody this um, attacker, very often what happens is they get a completely different take. They think, oh, this person actually didn't mean me harm. They're just trying to make me see this or they're trying, you know, they're trying to do X or Y, something different than they expect. And then the fear dissipates from the dream. It becomes a, a completely different dream. And the, the it, it, it's really transformative. I think the more, um, the more, uh, the further you go toward the edge of what feels like the other, and the more you can enter into that experience and truly embody it and be, um, you know, in real empathy with it, the more you're naturally going to, it makes sense, right, that your, your consciousness will expand because you're trying on ideas and uh, ways of being that you would consider foreign. And even if you don't adopt that whole hog, which I don't necessarily recommend, mm -hmm. but it stretches you a little, you start to go, oh, okay, there's another way to see this. This isn't how I thought. And um, we often identify in dreams with the dream ego, which is our avatar in our dream, but I don't think equates directly to us as a person. Uh, the dream ego is often persecuted and, and tortured and not having a good time. And I think the dream ego is is more um, related often to our persona and the, the face we show to the world. And that when that's threatened, our dreams will be scary, but that that's actually potentially uh, heralding a kind of shift in how we and how we um, are in the world that is threatening to our ego, but maybe not to our whole person, if that a makes sense. Transpersonal uh, uh, perspective, I would say. Mm, yeah. Uh, Bosnak's work is called Embodied Ima Imagination, correct? Yes. Okay, just so folks can check it out if they so mm -hmm. choose. Um, another area you talk about is dreams as a diagnostic tool, which I think anyone who's alive should listen to this piece of it for sure. But also, I think it'd be fascinating if, if our medical um, um, education included this for doctors, nurses, other healthcare practitioners, because I think it could not revolutionize medicine, because there's a whole bunch of other areas of medicine that needs to be reformed, uh, but could help inform the medical profession um, down the road. But can you speak to at least that specific thing? And you can give other examples of dreams as a diagnostic tool, too, not just physical illness. Yeah. So what I think is that um, uh, because dreams have access to our unconscious, to our bodies, that they are, they pick up on earlier um, subtle cues that might, um, might be, you know, really not accessible to us in waking um, when we're awake. And some people just don't really have a deep connection with their bodies, but um, Oliver Sacks is, you know, very famous um, uh, um, writer and, and psychologist who um, would be able to tell, he said one of his clients was able to tell when they were about to have a seizure because their dreams would be red and normally they were black and white. Um, and he would say that, you know, the dreams are pointing to things that are really there, but that are subtle. And uh, I have an example from, this is also my book, but I took this one from Jeremy Taylor, the the late Jeremy Taylor, who was a beloved uh, group dream worker. And he talked about in a dream group, how a woman had a, had a dream of this rotting, a purse full of rotting meat, which was so, so um, disgusting and so impactful. Then she took it to her dream group and they were, they were horrified as well and said, you really need to go and, and check this out. And so she went 
to the doctor to get a, a, a diagnose, diagnosis and um, they said there was nothing wrong with her. And so she went um, back again and had a, a really aggressive form of cancer, uterine cancer that would have killed her. She was about to leave on a long trip. And if she had left, she said she would not have survived that trip. And it was the dream that made her not just go to for one uh, a diagnostic test, but another one, because the dream was so, it was just so powerful and such felt like such a warning. And it, it was, in, in fact, um, really, it saved her life. She credits it for saving her life. And there are lots of uh, stories like this where dreams can point to parts of the body that might need attention. And um, that they're, you know, they're, they're really, it's worth checking out. So there's, there's the, at the level of the physical um, realm, a lot of um, dream workers I know will say that dreams always contain some body analogy. And there are certain kinds of dreams that are precursors to certain illnesses. So it, it is useful at that level. And there is also the a way that dreams can be diagnostic in terms of the, your psyche in terms of psychological issues. And so nightmares, for example, um, are related to unmetabolized trauma. And as they start to change, uh, the trauma will also shift. And they can be not just diagnostic, but also show that you're having some impact. They can, they can map the path to recovery. And I think that it's, it's really difficult to generalize about what a dream means and what it is saying. But if you work with dreams over time, like this dream group with this woman, if she'd had dreams like that every week, they might not have been so alarmed. But if you watch the pattern of your dreaming, is that your dog? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if you watch the pattern of your dreaming over time, then when something really shifts, it's a it's a it's a it's a way, a signal to say, pay attention to this and explore what it might mean. And, you know, I've, I've had really um, the, the way dreams tell things isn't always direct because we don't have access to the um the part of our brain that kind of just says it in a real concrete way. So we do have to decipher them. And, and I think the best thing to do is, is track your dreams over time. And if it, if it shifts into something that really feels like it's trying to get our attention, we'll probably repeat it as well then to, you know, just follow it up and see if it really is trying to say something. Sometimes houses can be body analogies, for example, like, like windows can be eyes and wiring can be your nervous system and plumbing can be your digestive system. And sometimes that maps onto your body, you know, and is, is a way to kind of just to check something out if it feels like the dream is telling you something's wrong. Usually you'll also get an intuitive sense that, oh, this is, this is important. Like the woman with the, with the, um, with the, with the uterine cancer, she had a, a real strong sense that this dream was a warning and it was. Would you say that uh, Anna Mandel is kind of the exemplar, his, his approach, process, psychology, process work uh, of, of using the, seeing the body as, um, as a diagnostic tool, especially the physical body in this case? Yes, I, um, I wish I'd worked more deeply with his, his work. I've, I've always been fascinated by him and his, his way of seeing the dream and the body as really um, always, always in process always linked and yeah i would say he's he's one of one of 
not, not only him, but I, I mean, Stephen Eisenstadt and Robert Bosnick, who we've already mentioned, also talk about imagination and medicine. And, and um, Mendel's work, I think, is maybe takes it a step further because he, he's, he says that we are just literally always in that process, that we are, um, but that when we're awake, what we would call awake, that we're out of touch with it. We're not in the dreaming, but that it's always there. And if we are, if we, if we shift into a um, sort of the, the dreaming state, then we would be more naturally aware of all that's going on in our body. And I think it's accessible to us. I think, for example, you know, that as a woman, why I would need to take a, a diagnostic test to know I'm pregnant. And I think, well, if I was really in touch with my body, that would be something that would be immediately apparent, something as mm -hmm. momentous as that. So I feel like as a, as a culture, maybe we, there is, it is possible to be more in touch with our physical bodies and, and maybe the dream dreaming can help us to, to do that. And I love in your book, how you, how you, you talk a lot about metaphor. Mm -hmm. um, um, and how important it is and how the body speaks to the conscious mind through metaphor. Not always direct, not like necessarily in English, if there's an English speaker with straight words, sometimes it's metaphoric, sometimes it's symbolic. Um, and let's, let, maybe now might be a nice time to talk about the different types of dreams that can show up in people's lives. And you, you list in your book quite a few different ones, but maybe let's pick a handful. You talk about big dreams, you talk about lucid dreams, and pre or pro-cognitive dreams, pre-cognitive dreams. Um, talk a little bit about big dreams. Yeah, so big dreams would be like the example I gave you at the beginning of my dream of mm -hmm. the, my near-death experiences tied into one image. And so these are dreams that, I mean, a lot of times we'll wake up and our dreams will be kind of fuzzy and we'll go, I, I know I dreamt something and all I remember is this little piece and big dreams are not like that. Big dreams are, uh, they're, they're very clear and vivid and memorable and you wake up from them uh, going, oh my goodness, this, this is important. This means something. I need to pay attention to this. And they feel, they do feel like they have a transpersonal element. So they're much bigger than we are. And there's a feeling of awe that comes with them. And in, people may only have, you know, one dream like this in a lifetime. But what I know about these dreams is that people will carry them with them for their lifetime and that they keep evolving. And I've worked with some big dreams that I remember one recent one in particular where a, a woman came to me with this dream that she'd been carrying around for about 10 years and was just as vivid as the day she dreamt it and when we worked through it, it she knew that it was um it was a very important uh, uh message an important way uh, that she needed to look at her life and it had to do with her her relationship with her mother which is a, a big archetypal relationship for us all and uh, she also seemed to have this intuitive sense that maybe she wasn't ready to process what it contained when she had the dream because she literally waited for 10 years, but when she worked with it, it was as if it was yesterday. The, the details were vivid and it brought a, a profound shift in her, her way of seeing um, her, the, you know, her, that very formative relationship and her, its place in her life. And it enabled her to move forward. And I think that big dreams can have that personal dimension, but then they also carry uh, a larger message. I think that can be more universally applicable than than maybe the more everyday dreams. Um, and 
So that's one type of dream. And Jung coined this phrase, and it really, I feel like also toward the end of life, people often have big dreams that help them with that transition, the end of life transition. And that's a whole realm of, of study that um, people, some people sort of um, specifically working is working with dreams at the end of life because they take on a, a different quality, a more, more spiritual quality. So there's big dreams. And then you asked about precognitive dreams, which are dreams that appear to predict the future. And the, a lot of people report having these. And it's interesting because I just read a book called When Brains Dream uh, that is uh, about, it's, it's written by uh, a couple of very long-term, very highly respected dream researchers who are very much um, looking at the, the, the history of scientific research into dreams, but they, in their book, say that there's that precognitive dreams are um, our thing. And it's because in their theory, uh, what we're doing when we're dreaming is we're actually exploring the possibilities. We have all of these um, um, you know, memories and events in our life and the things that, we, um, that we're conscious of and the things we're not conscious of, but that are part of our memory network. And when we're dreaming, we're trying out all the possibilities of what could happen next. And so sometimes we hit on the right thing, the thing that will happen. And then, of course, that will be memorable. And they say, so we, uh, he said, it's, so, so they're saying it's kind of a hit and miss thing, which may or may not be true, but there's a, there's a lot of, um, you know, sort of anecdotes about people dreaming of things that are going to happen. And it's true that our unconscious has more information than what we're consciously aware of. We can't hold all of the things that we remember and see, but it seems as though somehow our dreams have access to everything that we've seen, even if it was just a, a, a quick glimpse and everything that's that's maybe possible from that. So our dreams are pulling from a massive palette and that they that they can um, you know project um, into the future seems like it would make sense because they're trying to help us prepare for the future. Our brains are like a massive pattern recognition device, according to some you know neuroscientists. So if we're trying to recognize patterns, then then we can also predict in some ways. Um, of course, it's not something you can entirely rely on. You only know that it's a, a precognitive dream after the fact when something that you dreamt about does happen. But I think that there is there is a way that dreams can um, can predict. And so that's a, a very fascinating realm of, of dreaming. You know, and it, then, it, it, it strikes me that psychic powers aside or transpersonal aside, if you just look at animals, you know, they many animals, if you pay attention to them, will know in advance of some kind of natural disaster. Yes. Well, we have animal bodies. Why wouldn't we know at some very subtle levels the same thing? We don't pay attention to it necessarily because we're not so we're so, not so embodied, but it might show up through the dream because yeah. the body is trying to share with you for evolutionary reasons for survival. Like, hey, pay attention. Something's going to happen. Yes, I agree. I think that there, I mean, we, we tend to be over-reliant on, on the senses that, you know, the, uh, especially are what we see, but there are other senses like we, we have in, you know, in focusing in the body, we have interoception, we have a, a sense of ourselves from the inside, which is, um, you know, something that I think is a, a, a sense that 
um, is undeveloped in a lot of a lot of people that gives a lot of information. And then um, the physicists would say there's like a, a many different senses or, or realms that are uh, they've documented that we potentially have access to that we don't access. And and dreaming seems to have access to more uh, realms than than we do when we're awake. And so there there's no reason why they couldn't have um, you know ways of predicting other 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 events and we just don't we just don't listen to that or or it, you know it could be that you know far off in the future these ways of seeing and knowing will become more more commonplace or that we'll access all of the things that we that we have that are possible to know but um, I feel like um, through dreaming we get glimpses of that and there are you know people who you know, dream in a way that is much more advanced than I've ever experienced, where they can go literally into other places. And, and, and the indigenous cultures and are, are known for this, especially particularly skilled dreamers. And I, I, I like to keep an open mind about all that, because I think, um, why not? Why, 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 why can't this be possible? And makes life more interesting to think about things like this and so and, and and adding to the skilled dreamers can you just briefly talk about lucid dreams yes so there's many um sort of gradations of lucid dreaming i think that people who are um you know seen the movies inception for example about lucid dreaming have this impression that it's kind of an all or nothing uh, experience where you uh, are, wake up in your dreams and suddenly everything is super vivid and you have full control like my underwater dream and that is really um at the far edge of a continuum but lucid dreaming can be um, having inklings that you're dreaming, having uh, that come and go, sort of feathering in out of, oh, this is a dream, having the, aware that you're dreaming, but really not having any control over what your dream does. So there's variations in awareness, variations in levels of control. And it's, it's fun to practice it because I think you can, you can develop the skill by, by, by doing waking dream exercises like I do with, with dream work, where I ask people to enter into their dreams and start to let the dream open up more, to look around the dreamscape and see what's there and have an interaction with it. And that sort of bridges the waking dreaming state so that when I've noticed that, that when, when I do that or when, when someone I work with does that a lot, that they start to have a, like a, a more of a bridge between the dreaming waking state as well. And, and so there's, yeah, there's gradations of lucidity. And I think that um, cultivating some lucidity is really helpful for dream recall, for one. I noticed that when I wake up in my dreams, because I'm so interested in them, I woke up in my dreams a lot when I was writing my book. And I would, rather than try and control anything or do something for myself, I'd go, okay, this is a dream. Now I got to take notes. I got to remember this. I have to pay attention to what's going on. So it enabled me to be the watcher in my dream. And I would remember those dreams very clearly versus other times when my dreams would be kind of, um, you know, more fuzzy and, and I'd only recollect the, the, the very last part of it. So, um, and then there are people who, who take lucid dreaming further and go on, on journeys in their dreams and start to use them for um, 
you know, just asking big questions of this realm and going on, on journeys to other realms. Some people who feel that a dream shouldn't be messed with. And then when you wake up in a dream, you should be a respectful observer and not try and interfere too much. There's a, it's a whole kind of area unto itself. It's utterly fascinating. And, and there are um, a, a number of people that are, you know, really uh, experienced lucid dreamers that coach people in that and so i know robert wagoner is one and claire johnson is another and uh they're they're really um have made that their their focus is to help people access the, that lucid dimension now for the listening audience who have to be spellbound by all the different ways of exploring dreaming um, and the benefits of, of using dreams therapeutically, the different types of dreams, understanding the neuroscience behind dreams. Um, where can people find your book, A Clinician's Guide to Dream Therapy, Implementing Simple and Effective Dream Work? So it's published by Routledge. So you can, you can get it from uh, the publisher. Or if you just... Um, it's on Amazon as well. You can search it on Amazon and, uh, or go to my website. There's links to it. My website is, is my name, Leslie, L-E-S-L-I-E at drlesliellis.com. And there's not just links to the book, but also I have a blog on, on where I write, you know, just short pieces on all of these, these kinds of things and some, some courses and how to work with your own dreams and some self-directed courses, just a bunch of resources. And um, I'm also just very happy to answer people's questions if they, if they contact me. So, um, cause this is a topic, as you can tell that I dearly love oh, and yes. I'm happy to share. <laughs> it's just so much fun. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I'll definitely include the links to your website in the show notes and encourage okay. people to, you know, obviously buy your book, check out your courses, check out your blog and any other things you have going on. Um, Leslie, thank you so much for your time. This is fascinating. Loved your book. And let me once again, encourage people to check it out. And thank, thank you for being on the podcast. Oh, it's such a pleasure. I, I really, really enjoyed it. And I really enjoyed your, your questions and your, yeah, and speaking to you specifically. You're a lovely interviewer. Oh, thank you. Thank mm. you. Well, let me encourage you to hang out for a few minutes. I'm going to okay. close out this podcast with one of my favorite uh, singer-songwriters, Stuart Davis. And this song is called Fear of Light. <laughs> 